As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains, haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Um, want to welcome everyone that's listening in. I know you could have been tuned in somewhere else, but you're spending some time with us. So hopefully we'll make it interesting for you and you will come away learning something or reaching out to a resource that you didn't know was available. Today with us, though, we have Mrs. Ebony Jackson uh, Shaheed who is the uh, director of the Department of Health for the city of Bridgeport. So we're gonna just talk to her a little bit to get to know her in this uh, Women's History Month so she can tell her own story. Um, yesterday was International Women's Day. So we wanna big up our women that are contributing um, positively to the community. And uh, Ms. Jackson Shaheed is one of them. And I uh, wanna thank Tom Ficklin for allowing us to have this discussion on his platform. And Harry, who makes everything work so smoothly. Good looking out, Harry. Um, so, this action, he, Bridgeport Director of Health. Um, you started with the city back in 2021, official. That's when it was made official. Yes, it was. September. Okay. Wanna tell us a little bit how you how you got on this track? Sure. Um, I don't know if I should start from the beginning or just how I got here at the city Never, i think started from the beginning with your story <laughs> I, I know there's a part where you were doing research you're a researcher um published some papers so yeah let's get into it so um i actually had many careers before i actually landed here um and i think you know for a lot of people who um you know have in their mind to to actually go down one road i always say that you land maybe on different roads to get to where you're supposed to be. So everything happens for a reason. Um, but I started out um, as a health educator. So I have a bachelor's in health education and I actually um, was a teacher because wow. I did like the whole student teaching thing. And I was like, I'm gonna be an educator. Um, and so I taught for a few years. I did middle school and I did high school. I taught in Newark. No, you took the practice and all that? Well, for health education, you don't have to. Ah, that's um, right. Yeah, so you don't have to for health education. Um, but I did uh, teach physical education and and health education, uh, sexual education um, to high school students um, at Barringer High School in Newark and also um, Almedina School in uh, Brooklyn. Oh, and so, um, yeah, so but, I was there for Newark, a few years. Like Newark, New Jersey? Yeah, Newark. I went to Rutgers University. Um, I spent a fair amount of summers in Newark, New Jersey. I have family there. One of the reasons I'm a Mets fan, but that's another. Oh, uh, okay. Okay, and then I graduated ultimately from Montclair State. Okay. So, um, I thought I was going to stay in New Jersey, you know, for the rest of my life, and I was going to be teaching, uh, but it didn't happen that way because you know I got married to a lovely gentleman and I moved to New York. So um, I ended up teaching in New York for a while, mm. and um, and then um, I decided that I wanted to do something else with the health education portion and not just teach. 
Um, so I ended up working with City Harvest and doing some um, programming. Um, so that was an amazing experience. City Harvest is really big in the city um, and they basically work with um, inner city um, around food. Yeah, around food insecurity. Okay. And so um, I just learned so much there because it was a new initiative, a new program. And I just, you know, worked with a team of amazing women and we just wrote programs. Um, and so that was really awesome. So I took that experience and then I moved somewhere else. Um, and then I started doing um, community uh, health, maternal child health um, for this organization called Safe Space. Um, and I ran that program um, and it was amazing uh, because I was working with, you know, an underserved population, undocumented uh, population. And uh, basically we would find women who were in their uh, prenatal stage um, and we would bring them to give them lots of education and support um, and then bring them through um the birthing stage into uh up until the child was one years old and then we refer them to uh, this program called healthy so, families with, with with that with the prenatal care did you guys see a reduction in uh death and mortality of fetal births or moms with that population and were you guys using like midwives or doulas so that was the whole point of the program you know was to um reduce um mortality rates and women of color, um, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, building relationships and bonds between the mother and the child. And um, during that time, I actually became a doula. Um, and I also became a lactation consultant. Um, and that was all a part of some of the services that we provided. So me, you know, being the person that was running the program, they also sent me for those education um further education you know to to help mothers out and so then that started me on you know being a doula not only for the population that i was serving in queens but for other women in new york and connecticut and it was a, a very rewarding experience um Are because my mother is there a program like that here in connecticut there yeah. is there is um i mean there there are programs for doulas all over uh but there is a process you can go to any school to be a doula um, however, you have to go through the international um, doula process where is after you get your certification, you have to experience two live births and it just has to be documented and then you actually go ahead and apply for your international certification. Yeah. I'm sorry, you were saying something about your mother, I think. Yes, I was going to say that was the bonding experience with my mom, you know, because my mother has seven children. And so I think uh, me being the oldest, I think being a doula was something that um, we were able to bond on together since that was something, birthing was a very big part of her life. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that I was a doula, um, it was just something that we were able to bond on. And so I, I really appreciated that experience. Actually, my mother, uh, myself, and one of my younger sisters actually took the class together. Amazing. Yeah. I had some various uh, careers getting leading up to this point. Um, is is there uh, information around that and uh, any programming specifically in Bridgeport that's being done to reduce uh, mortality and morbidity in uh, prenatal and women of color? Actually, there is a huge program um, that is happening in Bridgeport right now. Um, it's fairly new. 
um, but basically it will be available to all women um, who qualify. I believe you have to uh, be receiving some sort of Medicaid or Medicare, um, and basically you will have access to a, a home visiting nurse um, mm -hmm. after you deliver your child. So there will be some sort of like a home visiting program where somebody will come out, a community health worker, um, and you'll have access to a nurse, but they will be able to come out to your home and they'll help you with some of the same things that, you know, the program that I worked on in New York, basically helping you bond with the child. If you're having issues with lactation, um, you know, really just being a support system to um, the mother and the family unit. I think that's so important. We actually, I think that that's part of our like American culture. Like we really don't support mothers after birthing. And and that really contributes to a lot of the postpartum depression, you know, and 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 really not, you know, even complications after birth. You know, a lot of them can be prevented. But if you have that support system and you have like this advocacy unit, it really can change outcomes. And I think that, you know, that this is amazing that we're going to have this program in Bridgeport. Um, and I think that hopefully uh, this is this is something that kind of moves to other areas as well, because it's it's definitely needed. No, that's great. Are fathers involved in this process at all, or is this strictly focused on the mom? So, you know what? Um, fathers are always involved. I mean, uh, obviously, when you're talking about this program, you know, they're, they're going to talk about the person who's holding the child. Right. But obviously, fathers are a part of that family unit. So in terms of you know, them coming out to the home and being a support, it's not just for the mother. They include the father as well. And there's also things that the father can do, which most of the time the community health worker does have, you know, um, something, you know, for the father, you know, to actually focus on. Because there are things that fathers can do during that process as well to help out with the bonding. It's it's not just, you know, the mother having a child, it's the, the unit mm -hmm. having a child. And yeah. so um, that that's a support system for the family. Awesome. Awesome. So you were talking about, again, your kind of journey. And I know that in, in your TV, so to speak, you, you've done some academic research work uh, at Yale and possibly other places. I want to talk about that. And I believe if you could um, define for the audience exactly what an epidemiologist is and does. Sure. So. Um... So actually, I started um, when I came to Connecticut, when I moved to Connecticut from New York, after I did some programming, some community health programming, I actually uh, moved into more of the behavioral sector. And so, you know, Connecticut is definitely known for um, developmentally having a lot of facilities for developmental disabled people. And so I um, worked at an agency where I was a group home director. Um, or a program manager. And after that, I moved over into more behavioral health and I became a behavior specialist. A lot of people call them BCBAs or behavior specialists, but I did some um, behavior health work. Um, and at that time um, I started, um, well, I was in my master's program for public health and my concentration was epidemiology. That's and so an epidemiologist basically studies disease patterns and populations. That's really the simple, you know, the, the simple definition. We study disease patterns and populations. Most of the time, people have no idea what I do when I say I'm an epidemiologist. 
That's one of the reasons why we're here. <laughs> Except for now, because of the pandemic, which okay. unfortunately I was very secretly, I was very excited about it because of my background being an epidemiologist. This is something that every one of us, you know, dreams will happen that will be, you know, involved some way in this exciting thing. But unfortunately, you know, it's not so exciting for the masses, but for us in terms of our careers, you know, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to live through a pandemic. I was just about to say that that is a perfect example of preparation meeting opportunity. Yeah, definitely. Because before that, we were predominantly used in um, mostly data fields. Like we do, our field kind of overlaps with biostaticians. We have very similar um, competencies. And so a lot of times epidemiologists usually do a lot of biostatician work which to be honest with you, um, prior to the pandemic, I was doing research at the VA and I completed my fellowship in neurology at Yale. And so I really was doing a lot of uh, biostatician work and you know, serving as a researcher. Um, and it wasn't until the pandemic where I was really able to use other skills um, for studying disease patterns. And so that's what this was all about, you know, during the pandemic. Nobody knew what this disease was, what was it doing to the population? And that's where an epidemiologist can use their skills to kind of investigate what's going on, what's the causes, you know, where are the patterns, you know, we are we are the investigators of medicine. Okay, so question for you. Two questions, I believe. So one, so I work a lot with the reentry population and what we've seen health-wise and the lack of continuity of care, that those individuals, when they come out, have a higher mortality and morbidity rate, much higher than uh, the normal rate of the general population. But we also know that black and brown people have higher instances of mortality and morbidity um, around hypertension and, and various other diseases like uh, diabetes. That is um, exacerbated with the reentry population. Did you see anything like that happening with the um, post the pandemic where it was impacting the, the, the black and brown community higher or the mansion community higher? Definitely. I think that the pandemic, to be honest with you, um, opened up a lot of the issues um, that we have already seen in um, black and brown communities in terms of uh, morbidity and mortality. I think that people, the scientific community, they they know that it's there, um, but I think because of the way our you know country is set up with systematic racism and medical racism, unfortunately, um, it's kind of like the thorn that we don't really want to go over and, and touch. Um, and so we know it's there, but we're really not acknowledging it. And I think that um, the being in a pandemic, it it put everything on a, a international scale. So everybody was able to see everyone else's business, basically. And so I think that, you know, when numbers came out and things were being published and they're like, why are black and brown people dying disproportionately to their white counterparts during this pandemic? But I think it's because, you know, to be honest with you, um, having those higher disease, uh, disease rates of um, different comorbidities, such as, you know, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, you know, um, already happening in those communities with this condition that was a re that was respiratory. It really was a recipe for disaster. So those those having those comorbidities 
actually did not help when you're dealing with a respiratory disease. And so therefore, you know, you had people, black and brown people disproportionately dying. And so that's something where people were like, okay, well, we really need to look at this and see what can we do. And so now we see, you know, going into post pandemic, more education programs coming out, um, right, you know, to, to educate our black and brown communities, you know, so that we can kind of change our behaviors, because a lot of that has to do with behavior. So you'll, you'll hear me teach a lot or come out with some programs, especially education programs, talking about like, you know, self-accountability and how we need to change our behavior and change our mindset of, of, of what, what can we actually do? What's in our power? How can we change? Because there's still going to be things systematically set up. But how can we, you know, if we have to eat at McDonald's, how can we make better choices and decisions? If we have to shop at a bodega or a corner store, right, for food, because there are not supermarkets in our area, right? How can we make healthier decisions? Um, how can we, you know, engage um, with physical activity, you know, without going to the gym? You know, the gym is not the only way that you can introduce physical activity into your life. Like we all struggle with those things, but it's about making better choices. And so we teach a lot about that here. Go ahead, um, Kent. And you also have the farmer's market in some of the communities. They accept the SNAP benefits as well um, when that's being run. I believe it just it ended uh, in late October, but it should be popping up in the spring with the farmer's market, correct? It should be. I think that that's another point, a good point, is that you know, we really need to, you know, realize that there are a lot of good resources in our community. Um, Bridgeport has so many organizations and resources for their, for, you know, the population. It's really just about, you know, knowing about what's there. You know, like you said, just uh, the farmer's market. Yes, they do accept SNAP benefits. And to be honest with you, most places uh, do. Um, even if you go to farmers markets that, that are not in your area, most farmers markets accept SNAP benefits and provide vouchers that give you discounted rates. So that's something, you know, that's really important. And I think also um, most people, most people have transportation or access to transportation. I think one of the better places that needs to be advertised more are farmers markets around Connecticut because the prices are honestly most of the time cheaper than a grocery store when you're talking about buying produce because we're talking about farmers who you know maybe small farmers or you know larger farmers a lot of times they they have a lot of um produce that they want to get rid of because it doesn't match what the grocery stores want right they usually want something that looks particularly you know round or you know a certain color and so you have these things called misfits that most of the time they get rid of or they give to different organizations like City Harvest for free, and then that organization can give it out to the community. So I honestly think it's just about knowing your resources, you know, in your area and in your state so that you can go ahead and, and get some of those. Because to be honest with you, at this point in time, 2023, there are so many opportunities and so many resources for us to be able to, to, to get into. That's, that's, that's great information. One of the things I want to kind of circle back to is so with the with the pandemic and the light being shined upon, you know, the health disparities uh, in our communities, um, there's also been a wealth of funding that's been kind of pushed from the feds into some of our communities. 
Um, but I want to know one is is that helping to close the gap? There's a lot of gaps in in in, in the health uh, disparities between Black and Brown and our um, Caucasian uh, fellow Americans. And with that, there's also just been a whittling away of public health. Um, and we saw how important public health is during the pandemic. This funding that's been coming in, is it is it restructuring, is it buffering, or is it just gonna be here for a minute? And because we have short memories, it's gonna be like, forget that the pandemic happened and we're not gonna really support people like you in, in public health. And what does that mean to you? So this is a complex question, um, really? but I think, to be honest with you, I don't think we'll ever be able to just ignore what happened during the pandemic. I think that, you know, there were too many lights being shined on some of this health inequity. So I don't think that we'll ever be able to turn our backs on it. What I do think um, is that we need to do more education or acknowledgement of um, what happened in the past so that we can kind of move forward. I think that that has never really been addressed during a pandemic. I don't think that anybody really came out and said, listen, there is, people are calling it vaccine hesitancy. And, you know, the black and brown community still, we're not getting this, this equity of vaccine and like, you know, um, being, you know, seen or going to the hospital, like what's going on. I don't think nobody ever really came to the table and addressed it on a federal or state level. Um, so I think, you know, we need to do, we have a lot of work to do moving forward in terms of education, right? However, funding, there is a lot of funding coming in. <laughs> I don't think that that funding is going to last forever. But what I do think is, is that people, people's mindsets have changed somewhat. And hopefully the money that they are getting and the money that they have in their budgets, hopefully they use that more wisely. So when it comes to programming, when it comes to, you know, closing the gaps, Hopefully they're they're including those ideas um, or those areas that are really important and, and using their funding, whether it's coming in or whether it's existing, to tackle some of those issues. Because, you know, we're we're it's just we're still we're gonna deal with this. This is not something that's just gonna, okay, post, you know, whatever, and it's like one or one to three years. This is something that's gonna happen into the future. Because we're talking about mental health, you know, we're seeing all these rippling effects. This is not something that's just going to go away. So I don't think that people are going to have any opportunity to say, okay, the door is closed from the pandemic and everything that happened from it, and we're no longer going to be able to fund, or we're we're no longer going to be able to um, to uh, to be forward thinking. I, I just I don't see that happening. Um, but I do see, you know, the faucet in terms of funding you know, drying up soon. I mean, I don't think that, you know, the state or at a federal level that they're just going to continue to pour in the amount of money that they have during the pandemic and directly after. I think that it will trickle off eventually. Um, but I just think that people's mindsets and how they use their money for programming will change. Like what I Okay, we have about two minutes left. And this has been about you talking about the journey and you never, what would you, what do you want to, what else do you want to share about yourself and your journey and however you want to present it or whether you want to finish talking about more public health stuff, your two minutes. 
So um, I think uh, what I will say, um, being a an African American woman from um, New Haven, Connecticut, um, you know, I, I think that it's important for us to know that you know we do have opportunities, we do um, have resources. Um, I think that part of you know where I am today is a part is basically determination. Um, you know, there could have, there were plenty of times that I feel like I could have given up, but I think that if you really want, you know, advanced education, it, you can definitely do it. And I think that the best thing, uh, feeling that I get is when I walk in a room and I see, you know, um, a female or a, a young African-American male, you know, kind of look at me and, you know, can identify with me and say, can I talk to you? Because I think that it's relatable when I tell them where I'm from, um, they they feel that they can aspire to do what they want to do. Um, so I think, you know, as being an epidemiologist, a black woman in this very scientific field, very specialized, where I don't really see barely anybody that looks like me, I think it's important for us to um, to really go into some of those areas. We're underrepresented in research, we're underrepresented in medicine. Um, those are areas that we need to go in and we, we need to tackle. We can't be afraid of math and science. So that's what I would leave the community um, because I won't be around forever. And, and I, I definitely think that we need to keep that representation going. Absolutely. I totally agree. Thank you for your time, Director Jackson. Hopefully we can have you back up talking about some of the other fabulous programs that you're implementing and helping out in the community. I really appreciate your time and your story is amazing. I'm sure there's a lot that we didn't get to. So next time, hopefully we can. Thank you for having me anytime. Have a blessed day. You too. Bye-bye. Wow, that was an amazing, amazing amount of information that we were just given. Um, I think the work that's being done by our public health officials is just phenomenal, um, especially given the fact that, again, um, the amount of disparities that are in uh, in our community. So, but with that being said, we do, or we did for a moment, have our uh, next guest coming up. We just talked a lot about, you know, uh, mental health and physical health and, um, I wanted to bring attention to the need for self-care and we're going to have Miss Winter Carson up to discuss, or as she's better known as um, Madam Blush, Madame Blush. Um, like I said, we just talked about physical and mental health. I think a part of that physical and mental health is about self-care and with this again, being um, Women's History Month and yesterday being International uh, Women's Day, I wanted to get someone up here that could really discuss um, the importance of self-care, um, Black-owned business. And we have Miss Winter Carson. Hi, how are you doing today? Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm glad. How are you? I am well. Blessed and highly favored. So tell mm -hmm. us about yourself. Tell us, you know, about Blush and, and tell, just... Share with us the importance of self-care and how you provide that and what you do for the community. So, Winter Carson, I'm the owner of Blessing and Wellness. It is a treatment center where um, 
holistic healing with clinical health. I really um, am devoted to skincare. I am devoted to women empowerment. I'm devoted to mental stability. And I really do my best to create a safe place where clients can relax, renew, restore, and release. Um, I took my mask off and I was just in compression and I have special permission from a client who is in the um, compression chair at the moment to do the front interview. But uh, my compression chair, along with the facial bed, along with UV light sauna therapy, are just some of the pieces that I incorporate into treatment that really allow my clients to have a moment of breath. Um, I think the pandemic for that has taken a toll on everyone, not only the mental health, but physical health. So whether you just need a moment to sit and relax and smell of aromatherapy and listen to air, um, relaxing notes and music, or you need a full body transformation to elevate and release the toxins and allow um, the congestion and inflammation in the body to be at rest, the blood and the wellness is that place. Um, it's a holistic center, so there are lots of natural ingredients in skincare. And for those who are suffering from extreme skin conditions, I can post it in a clinical manner. But either way, it's really focused on just being a relaxing, safe place uh, because it's, it's so needed in our community. And we don't often get time to take off our tapes or put down our hats. Um, we have to go do this and attempt to this and help with that. Um, I really try to focus and I thank my clients for not coming to visit me, but for giving themselves some time. You included. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, the, I, I believe it is called the Dapper Dan package of uh, men. It's how I stay so clear. And I'm, I'm sure I'm due for an appointment in the next couple of weeks, if not sooner. Um, <laughs> I appreciate you coming on board. Um, question for you. So how, how long have you uh, started? Like, where, where, tell us about your journey. And I also believe that you're, you're uh, a part of something with Quantipiac as well, if you want to share, share, share that with us. I am. So um, I've been in this, the cosmetology field for over 10 years. I started in retail, fresh out of cosmetology school, um, managing some of your favorite beauty retailer stores. And I've learned the inside secret uh, what's missing. Um, who the retailers are actually aiming towards, um, where our people are seeing that. And I have devoted so much time to the beauty industry and applying cosmetics. I really wanted to take it through 60 and approach it in a wellness way. Um, something that isn't really uh, highlighted when they're doing makeup applications um, is the skincare. A lot of skin prep is needed for these makeup applications to look good. Um, and one of my least favorite terms in this field is cover-up. It's, it's, um, it's a term for like foundations and concealers, a cover-up. It's kind of a, uh, an old-school term, um, but it's still around nonetheless. And I really wanted to uncover what a lot of our people were covering up with foundations and concealers. So mm -hmm. I took that approach when COVID hit to really devote my practice to making people feel good and not just look good. Um, and that has evolved over time. And the Quincy University cohort that I'm taking here at the lab at Concord has allowed me to um, not only stay focused on that mission, but to remind myself that it is further than this small room. Um, I'm very active in the youth in New Haven. I volunteer and work on a lot of food programs. 
um, with young, younger children, middle-aged, high school kids. Um, and I was at one point blessed with the opportunity to give back with a program that is no longer available, but it sparked um, the Blessed Initiative. And the Blessed Initiative is the after-school program that I'm perfecting the business plan for while I'm in the culture, which steps outside of this space and steps inside the schools and allows um, the, blessed, the blessed experience to be given to the students in a way of life skills and career management. Um, because there's so many ways, there's so many paths that you can go in cosmetology. I really wanted to show that to the students. And, and the life skills prep allows them to, um, to not only take what social media gives them to look good for the gram and, you know, apply new glasses and do a new hairstyle and take her in your own cuts, but how to apply those skills that you're learning on social media, apply those skills that I'm teaching in the classroom to get that job interview, to be, you know, ready for approaching someone for a loan or um, to take that business step, to be to look the part. Um, I, I feel like there's so much power in cosmetics that it needed to be taught in a different way. So I'm, I'm trying my best to perfect that business plan and to um, approach tech schools as well um, for, the young, for the young ladies and gentlemen who are um, interested in the field or taking that hairstyling course or taking that cosmetology course, I like to take them and expose them to the field in a deeper way. Um, so whether it be partnering with me in a blush initiative or prepping them for job interviews at their favorite beauty supply store, um, I really want to make it an, an outreach impact. So couldn't you allow me to do that as well? So we, we have about two minutes. Um, and I just want to see if you could touch upon the, and you kind of talked about it, but even like with our young folks and even in, in our older folks in the community, the kind of, there's a lot to being Black. There's a lot to being Black and it's how that's associated with the standards of beauty in the world versus uh, Eurocentric point of view of what beauty is. How do you communicate to the young folks and the old folks how beautiful we as Black people are um, with makeup, without makeup, or or try to hinder them from doing stuff that might damage them, like the bleaching and the different things. Uh, so the no, first thing that two minutes. The first thing I tell every client is your beauty. You're beautiful without this. No matter if you're paying your top dollar or you're just asking a simple question, you're beautiful without it. Um, second thing is I stress, 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 something. Um, because it's not a makeup product, it's very well a skincare product. And I never want my clients to be overwhelmed. So I, I give them, I tell them to wear their sunscreen daily because it does protect. We always, we always want to say black don't crack. It's a, it's a saying for, for eternity, but it, it, in fact will. Um, and it can if you don't properly take care of it. So cleansing your skin, feeding your skin, and moisturizing your skin are, are key notes in, in proper skincare, whether you're, 16 or 65, um, and my eldest client to date was 96, and she was able to grasp that concept even in her minimalistic ways. So that's that's definitely what I stress. It's very important. Okay, well, thank you. And that does conclude our time, but tell folks where they can uh, reach you and how can they make an appointment? You have an online process. Absolutely. So I'll just give a, a little bit of a... 360. You can visit my location, Blush Beauty and Wellness, at 
Concorp at the Lab, which is on the corner of New Hall and Moore Street. Um, you can find me at 203-676-0474 if you want a direct contact to my phone number or my Instagram is blessedbeautystudio underscore. Um, you can find all of my work in action, makeup artistry and skincare on that page. Thank you very much, Madam Blush. Appreciate having you. Hopefully we can speak with you again um, after that competition is won. Thank you so much. I'm speaking to Anthony just said we'll have a, a whole new setup and location after that. Thank Bless you so much. Have a blessed day. Well, wait your time guys. Okay. Um, we talked a little bit about education and working in the schools with our youngins. Um, right now, again, for a woman to tell her own narrative, which is the theme of Women's History Month and yesterday being International uh, Women's Day, we have Arden Santana, who is the creator and founder of Sage Academy and also concurrently running a program on developing well-rounded uh, children, I believe. I might have that incorrect. She'll correct me, I'm sure. But welcome, Arden. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, everybody. Thank you so much. So as um, Earl said, my name is Arden Santana, founder of Sage Academy, which is a private alternative to traditional schools um, whose educational philosophy positions civic education, along with reading, writing, and arithmetic, um, and arithmetic as the pillars of literacy to raise capable, responsible, well, to educate capable, responsible, and caring um, contributors to the global society. And we deliver on our promise to families who we partner with in, in educating children by collaborating with businesses, organizations, and members of the community who believe in our vision. Um, so one such collaborative program that we are conducting right now is called Raising Highly Capable Kids. And it's a parenting curriculum, uh, research-based, that provides parents with tools known as uh, developmental assets um, that the research shows the more assets that a child has access to and in their lives um, significantly reduces the chances of them becoming involved in the adverse behaviors that we would prefer that our children not get involved in. Um, you know, drugs, uh, prison pipeline, those types of things. Um, so Raising Highly Capable Kids just began last night. It is a 13-week or 13-hour program, let's say it that way. Um, I'm currently running the first cohort on Thursdays from 6.30 to 7.30. Um, and we are able to take uh, up to seven more parents uh, by ne for next week. After the second session, we can't allow any new parents in. Um, but I've gone through the training myself, currently facilitating. Um, great feedback last night from the uh, three parents that participated. And um, everybody's excited to come back again next week. Um, so I would love to invite seven more parents in to come in and just, you know, build community with other parents where you can figure out who has shared values um, and get the support that's needed for women and fathers alike and, and raising children. Um, and I don't know, Earl, do you have a question for me or do I have opportunity I, I to share one more? Into, I wanted you to get that out, but I know you have a heavy focus on civic engagement and civic education, um, so that the students can be aware of the power of the community. Um, when the federal government talks about being there for the people, um, and the people have the power, you are you very, you, you provide a, a strong emphasis on that. Um, and I also just want to know 
know where 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 did this come from? Um, this urge, this passion to start your own education. Where did you see the lack in what's already out there, and how to fill that gap? Okay, so this started as a child for me, where most of my peers played, you know, certain games. I I played school. That was fun for me. Um, and transitioning into motherhood, where um, I knew that I would homeschool my children. Um, and it was, so let, let me go back a bit. I became a public school teacher. That yeah. was for um, ten, uh, eight years total in Maryland and Connecticut. Um, so I, 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 I was able to see public school inside, outside as a parent, as a teacher, um, in administrative levels. And I was driven out by No Child Left Behind. Um, education policy that just sort of stifled the passion in me for teaching. And then I became a mom and I needed to educate them. Um, so I've, I've just been, every job I've held since high school has been in education. Um, Sage Academy evolved out of um, not being able to get around providing education at the elementary level. I always prefer high school. <laughs> um, so I having my own children, I couldn't get around it. Pre-COVID, I'm offering um, online classes in language arts and social studies for six to nine-year-olds who um, just gave me all the feels. I enjoy, you know, working with that group, and I and I didn't think I had that level of interest in it. Um, and then COVID hit, and there became a need. There became a demand for art and some help me, help me academically with my child. So that actually is how Sage started. Um, and we were virtual initially, um, and we've just sort of, you know, scaled serendipitously into being able to have a, visit, a brick and mortar location. But um, it was my own involvement years, just around the time of my second birth, where I was learning more about the judicial branch of government, which I feel people sort of omit in conversations about government. We talk about, you know, what the legislative branch is doing wrong. We talk about what the executive branch is doing wrong and folks. One point of emphasis, there are many people that don't know the three different branches of government, just to be fair. Exactly. No, thank you, because they don't. And so this is, that's, you've answered my question. Why do I do this? Because there are many people, adults, who don't know what those branches are. And those who do don't know maybe the impact that the judicial branch has on law. Mm. Um, so there was that piece. And then from the National uh, Assessment of Education Progress, it's a national report that comes out um, that assesses uh, the nation's performance in pretty much most of the subject areas. The last time, I think 2018 would be the most recent report in civics. Less than 25% of our nation's eighth, eighth graders are proficient, proficient in civics education. Okay. And that's not assessed. Now, civics education being awareness of how to engage with our government, with our world, basically, how to, everything we do is civic. You know, we're, we're engaging in civics whether we know it or not. So we don't obviously know this coming out of eighth grade. It's not assessed in 12th grade, which that's what baffled me. As students are entering into the adult world where we're supposed to satisfy the mission statement of the majority of school systems across the country, because I, I looked at them and they're changing now, but they say things like, you know, producing productive citizens of society, um, 
in similar fashion, they say that same thing. How do you deliver on that when we're not making sure that our students are civically literate when they're graduating into the world after 12th grade and supposed to become adult citizens? Okay. Um, so, yeah, so that that's just it. That's what SAGE does. SAGE is filling that gap in civic ignorance. Okay. So what, what other things do you have going on? I, I know that you are an aspiring um, law student or pre-law student. You want to talk about that? We have about two minutes. Okay, so Yale Access the Law School, that's why I came in late because I was actually uh, fulfilling one part of what that program does to support our journey through um, applying to law school. So it serves people like me who's a second lifer, um, I'm an educator, but I developed this interest in law through my experiences with, you know, having self-represented myself in cases, um, this whole civic awareness piece. It just opened a love and a passion for me in law. Um, so the opportunity presented to be able to go through Yale's Access to Law Fellowship, which um, takes two years to prepare us to be able to apply for law school. Um, and they, we get one-on-one -on -one coaching, we have uh, academies, a supportive group of, uh, you know, colleagues and uh, coaches and things like that. So just coming from a one-on-one -on -one session just before the show. Awesome. Um, yeah. One last thing, uh, last minute before we get kicked off the air by Mr. Harry, the producer. How can folks find out more about Sage Academy? How can folks donate or support your effort in this educating our youth? civically everyone can go to um ardensantana.com and you will be able to access everything that i have going on in my world um which is all civically and community engaged so my name is um in the corner of of my box however you're seeing that and it's ardensantana.com you can get access to sage um give me about the end of today to put a link to a major community, um, uh, a major community investment opportunity um, we're planning for April 8th with another organization that I'm a senior uh, management for. Um, so yeah, there's an uh, inaugural tribute celebrating a community economic development plan that um, we're putting on April 8th. And I really want people to know about that. Um, so it's a link tree that will be on the artistsantana.com space. So to be able to get more information about that. So definitely please check out artistsantana.com. Go once, go twice, go to later, go tomorrow, um, because we need to update it with the uh, April tribute that's coming up. We're looking for sponsors, vendors, and New Haven and greater surrounding area community members to, to join us. Great. Thank you. And we'll make sure to get this spread around and tell a friend to tell a friend. Yes. All thank right. you again, girl, for having me. Thank you for coming up. Thank you for doing the great work that you do in the community. Keep it up. Stay blessed. Thank you. Can't stop, won't stop. No doubt. <laughs>
Thank you, Harry. Awesome, awesome day. As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at devoiding myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains, haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gon' give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Cause this is my Let's camera action already